0: You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Keep your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Hello, I'm Gabby Dunn, and this is Bad With Money. My guest today is Hilary Hoffauer, a business insider reporter who covers the intersection of youth culture and wealth. Lucky for you guys, I too am an expert on youth culture. Why are you laughing? Stop laughing. Okay, by expert on youth culture, what I mean is I have a TikTok. It's at Dabby Gun. Please go follow it. Although you all regularly roast me on there. So look, one time I said that the For You page was a timeline and everyone jumped on me for being a millennial. We've talked a lot on this show about what it means to study millennials and Gen Z, such as what Hillary does. Reporter and friend of the show, Nona Willis-Aronowitz, came on Bad With Money way back to talk to us about how the terms for generations are often defined by the upper middle class and white members of that group. The media portrayals of millennials and Gen Z are not accurate, or at least they are not the only people in that generation. Like I've said in prior episodes, I've been thinking a lot about the long-term effects of COVID on the economy which will then go on to be inherited by young people. For this interview, Hillary breaks down how these generations were affected by first the recession and then the pandemic. The idea has always been that those who can build wealth will. In fact, the American dream is predicated on the idea that anyone can build wealth, right? So the goal of going to college, buying a house, getting job promotions, it's all to gather and hopefully maintain not just income, which is what you're paid at your job, or it can be passive income, but let's just use income to mean what you get from work here, but it's also to save, invest, and accrue long-term wealth. And not everyone can do that. It's why so many more white people come from generational wealth than black people, because white people kept black families from owning property and building wealth for hundreds of years. You can have a higher income, but it means nothing if you're not working off the same foundation of family estates or grandpa's business, let's say, as your more privileged peers. It doesn't mean exactly nothing, but you're starting a little bit behind the people that do have access to these things. So this episode is about building wealth. Is that even possible for anyone who isn't already wealthy? What are the differences between what young people are doing for stability now versus what our parents did? What does wealth even mean at this point? How can you define what is comfortable or financially healthy? The best way to begin, Hillary said, is to have a plan. Any plan.
1: All right. Hillary, can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? I am a correspondent at Insider. I essentially write about money. I started covering personal finance about three years ago for Insider, and that slowly evolved into coverage of youth intersection and wealth, looking at millennials and increasingly Gen Z as they move into young adulthood, looking at these generations and their impact with the economy and how they deal with money and their financial behaviors.
0: Yeah. So I found you through an article Mm -hmm. that was about Gen Z repeating millennials' money
1: problems. Can you talk a little bit about what that article was about? Yeah. So, basically, when I am referring to Gen Z and Millennials, I use the Pew Research Center's definition. So, the oldest Gen Zer turns 24 this year, and Millennials turn ages 25 to 40. And I might be referring to the latter a bit throughout our talk for comparison's sake. Totally. Yeah. We'll mostly be focusing on the oldest Gen Z who is in college and already in the labor force rather than those who are in high school.
0: Yeah. And we've talked a lot on this show about the work of this journalist named Nona Willis-Aronowitz who has talked about how classifying Gen Z and millennials usually Mm -hmm. is classifying a certain class and race and gender and ability type of person. So normally we when we think of Gen Z and millennials, we are thinking of like young people living in cities or at college, Mm -hmm. etc, etc. And we're not really thinking about younger people who are in low income situations or in other Mm -hmm. parts of the country. So that is something that I like to preface also on this show, which is that generally, when defining generations, we define it by a specific class group, middle class, upper class group.
1: So that's my PSA. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's definitely great to point out, Gabby. And to that point, I do think that the pandemic has kind of exacerbated these socioeconomic gaps within both generations, which we'll probably get to a little bit later in our chat. So circling back to the article you mentioned that you found, to start out with, Gen Z has... Grown up reading stories about the economic plight of millennials and seeing how millennials were affected by the Great Recession and student loan debt. So this has already made them more practical and cautious with money. And now mm-hmm. they're finding themselves in a very similar position to that of older millennials a dozen years ago. This cohort of millennials graduated right into the Great Recession, when mm-hmm. the unemployment rate was around 10%, according to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor. And so the class of 2020 now graduated into an equally, if not more, dismal job market with a 14.7% unemployment rate last May. So last April, already 27% of Gen Zers ages 16 to 24 were unemployed. A year later, that's currently now 11.1%. It's a big difference, but it's still pretty high. And again, for comparison's sake, that is higher than the overall unemployment rate of 10% during the Great Recession. So they've definitely been hit hardest in terms of the job market. Now, this is normal. Recessions typically hit younger workers hardest in the short term, as we saw with the older millennials before Gen Z. But you also have to consider the uniqueness of a recession caused by a global health crisis. Mm-hmm. The service industry was slams, and a lot of younger workers, those in college, in high school particularly, work in the service industry as part-time jobs. So Mm -hmm. this is also a factor coming into play that we didn't see during the Great Recession. And it's also worth noting in terms of how pandemic is creating these new economic woes for Gen Z that are starting to set them on a path similar to millennials is that in this case, the first two stimulus checks only went to those who weren't claimed as dependents on someone's taxes. So that means that Gen Z, who are in college, who have these part-time jobs to help fund their education, likely didn't get a check. Now, the third stimulus check does include dependents over age 16, but it went to the parent or caregiver, not the dependent themselves. So even though the government has been providing economic relief for millions of Americans, some of Gen Z likely didn't get a check compounding the burdens that they're currently facing. Oh boy. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: we, so that answers my question, why is Gen Z starting behind the eight ball? But let's get more specific about it. So, yeah. so how do you define
1: wealth and how do you define building wealth? That's a good question. So wealth is different from earnings. You can have mm-hmm. high earnings, but you cannot have enough wealth because you're in debt. So, you know, technically wealth is having enough money or assets to live life comfortably. And building wealth is the act of saving or acquiring assets to get there. But that said, everyone has different definitions of what it means to be wealthy. And that's why I go back to this sense of comfort and financial stability. Someone could feel like that on $50,000 a year or with $10,000 in their saving, but others might not feel that sense until they're making $100,000 a year or have $50,000 in savings. Mm So it really is all relative at the end of the day.
0: I think we're using wealth to mean wealthy colloquially, but that's mm-hmm. not necessarily what it actually means. And so how does one build wealth?
1: Building wealth means to acquiring like this sense of, of financial success. And being, I guess, maybe financially healthy is more of a better term than financial success, considering, as I said, that it is defined differently by everyone But it all starts with having a plan, which involves identifying your short-term and long-term money and savings goals, tracking Mm. your spending, finding where you need to cut back, tackling any debt you have. You can't really build wealth, technically speaking, until you get rid of your debt. Yes, you can save money while you're paying off debt but you still might technically have a negative net worth and that therefore doesn't make you wealthy so general rule of thumb tucking away 20% of your take-home pay a month and building an emergency account that will cover at least three months of expenses. But going back to Gen Z, it's really hard to afford these typical strategies that come to building wealth right now.
0: Oh, of course. My next question Mm -hmm. was going to be who can do it? Because I feel like we've talked a bit on this show about the benefit of having your parents having built wealth Mm -hmm. or the benefit of having these homes or assets that have been in your family for years and years versus like most black people in this country haven't owned property for as long as white people have or mm-hmm. certain families are still renting, do not own their homes. Like, I mean, the the American dream is that anybody can, but like who can really build wealth to a significant degree?
1: Yeah. So I think this goes back to your PSA earlier <laughs> <laughs> of who we think of when we speak of Gen Z and millennials and, you know, it ties in to the gap that I mentioned that these socioeconomic gaps that the pandemic has exacerbated. You know, I want to touch on millennials quickly for an example here. We all know the tale of the economic plight of millennials. They riddled with student debt. They can't afford home ownership. As I mentioned earlier, they are still playing financial catch-up from the Great Recession. But not everyone falls into this. So what we've seen is an intensified wealth gap during the pandemic in which there is a cohort of millennials who are doing fine. They have been recovering well. This is the people who have kept their jobs during the pandemic. So they've been able to finally tuck away discretionary spending that otherwise wouldn't have existed outside of an economic lockdown and finally been able to save some money when interest rates for homes finally dropped to a historic low. They finally were able to start snapping up Home, So this is kind of the cohort that you're looking at that can build wealth. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, lower income millennials are really struggling, and especially those who are parents. Women have had to drop out of the labor force to take care of their children at home because the caregiving options weren't open during the pandemic. And so to that point, they've also been picking up more chores at home. And it's kind of starting to reverse any equality we've made in these gender roles. Dropping out of the labor force, you know, that's income loss right there. So it's really like widen this gap in building wealth. And I think that it's safe to say that for the oldest Gen Z, we are probably seeing a growing gap there too. I don't think it's quite as pronounced because they're not as old as millennials, but I think that the pandemic is really like creating this wealth gap for this emerging adult generation right out of the get-go.
0: That's even wider than in the past? Yes.
1: So
0: how does one maintain wealth? Because when you're talking about building wealth, you're talking about Mm -hmm. saving, you're talking about purchasing property, you're talking about investing maybe. Like what, what what does this mean to maintain wealth?
1: So I think that the key to maintaining wealth is to not fall victim to lifestyle creep. Ooh, what's lifestyle creep? <laughs> Great question, Gabby. So lifestyle creep is when you increase your discretionary spending as your income increases. So for example, say you jump from a $60,000 salary a year to a $75,000 salary a year, and I'm, I'm using that Raise example because I think 75 has been the marker in studies mm-hmm. for financial happiness, typically. So if you've been saving 20% of your salary a month at $60,000 and you've dedicated, say, 500 to discretionary spending. But once you get that raise, if you increase your discretionary spending from... 500 to 800, you're upgrading your lifestyle in a sense to match this raise. When what you should be doing is increasing your savings or taking it as a next step in your investing strategy to use the difference in your raise to put it towards these more short term and long term money goals.
0: Yeah, that's something that I have fallen victim to as mm-hmm. well, because you you just don't have any concept of what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Like once you see the idea of upgrading and once you have money sort of moving to a different place or going out more pre-pandemic or whatever, when it's hard to feel like, okay, I made more money, but I should keep
1: doing what I'm doing. Yeah, definitely agree with that. And I too have fallen victim to lifestyle creep. It's hard not to. And I think younger generations have a treat yourself mentality. And I agree with that to an extent, but in moderation. And I think that this is why it goes back to what I was saying earlier when it comes to wealth building. You always need to start with a plan and tracking what you're spending and where you can cut back or or add to your savings.
0: Yeah, let's not think of it as cutting back. Let's think of it as adding to one's savings. So like if I yes. cancel my Disney Plus account, <laughs> I can yes. put that somewhere else. I won't, but but I could. <laughs> exactly. So I think a lot of it comes from learning what things go into building wealth, there was a part of an article you wrote that was like, millennials aren't behind, they're just creating a new normal. You know, the idea is like, oh, they're behind because they don't own property. They're behind because they're not spending on the same things that boomers did or Gen X did. Can you explain that? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So basically, once something that kind of starts as a trend doesn't really leave, it's kind of a new normal. So I spoke with a psychologist about this, Jeffrey Arnett, who coined the term emerging adulthood, which encompasses the period between adolescence and adulthood. And he started studying this in the 1990s. And even then, people were already starting to stay in school longer, delay getting married, start a career a little later because they were staying in school longer. And you can't really compare this to the norm in the 1960s. And since the 1990s, this has evolved even further. More women, for example, are having children in their 30s than ever before, and it's largely because... Childbearing is a financial decision and they want to wait until they get their finances in order. And even more people are staying in school longer because they're going to grad school. And that's especially common for millennials who have faced two recessions before 40. Grad school enrollment goes up during a recession because there aren't as many prospects in the job market. So the fact that this has been continuing since today and beginning of the 2020s, this isn't a trend. This is a new normal. We can't keep comparing them to their parents because having these standard American dream milestones of buying a house, having children, et cetera, getting married before age 25 is no longer the normal. And millennials have set the new precedents for Gen Z, doing things at a later age. But again, it's no longer a later age because it's reframed societal expectations at this point.
0: Yeah, like don't think of yourself as behind on life when this is actually the standard now. Exactly. And you shouldn't compare yourself to what Gen X or what the boomers have done because largely for millennials and Gen Z, this will just be the timeline. Exactly. People have a certain class. Yes. Can we talk about housing as wealth building? Yes. How does that work and what does that mean? And also what has changed for using a house in that way?
1: So I've been thinking a lot about the housing versus wrenching debate lately. So housing has typically been one of the key aspects to building wealth. And people who have studied everyday millionaires have found that one of the key ways to building wealth is living in a house that is way below what you can afford. And it comes into the term of being house poor. When someone gets a house for the exact mortgage that they were qualified for, and then they can't really afford anything else because they're spending their max out on that house. So if you yeah. So if you do buy a house, you should get one for less than the monthly mortgage you are qualified for because that will free up more of your income to put into other savings or investments or retirement accounts. Now, the thing about buying a house is over time, that house increases in value. So naturally speaking, you should reap a profit off of selling it. And, you know, that becomes your investment. But there are some things that people don't necessarily take into consideration when buying a house. For one, there's a lot of maintenance costs and upkeep that you don't have to pay for when you're renting. Mm -hmm. So if you add things up like that and just all these extra costs over time, your profit in the long run might be smaller than what you were originally anticipating. And now this isn't to say that buying a house is a bad investment. It is obviously a case by case decision. But I think that over time, like millennials have gotten a bad rap for renting forever and not being able to buy a house. But some millennials actually prefer to rent forever because they feel skeptical of buying a house, that it's not a worthy investment. But they're also very, affected by the Great Recession. So it's made them pretty risk averse when it comes to using that as a tool for wealth building.
0: The idea used to be like you live there and you raise your family there. But I think millennials I think I think like when we're talking about a specific subset of Gen Z and millennials, they were pre-pandemic living in cities where, you know, I know in Los Angeles you really can't get a house for less Mm -hmm. than like a million. And that's pushing it. And So like getting a place outside of the city and having a longer commute and all that did factor in for people. But now like a bunch of my friends moved out to the sticks (laughs) and and could afford a place there, which is also complicated because I'm sure it it creates rising housing costs for the rural people that already lived there. But I do wonder how much it has changed in terms of where people are buying homes and how they're, they're viewing them.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the pandemic has definitely accelerated millennial families moving out of cities to the suburbs. And buying houses? Are they buying houses? Yes, they are buying houses. So I do think, it's to your point, it will be really interesting to see what the effect of this will be on the more rural areas, or not even rural areas, but these kind of... You know, you have like your superstar cities like San Francisco, LA, and New York, these cities that kind of, it's where the jobs are. They, they uh-huh. gobble up all the job gains. And now, especially coupled with the era of remote work, these people who are moving more to the suburbs or to other cities like Austin or Miami, which are big cities in their own right, but not... Play as as many jobs as San Francisco mm-hmm. or New York. It'll be interesting to see how it kind of shapes these these mid level cities and the surrounding suburbs there as well.
0: Yeah, I think also you would think, oh well, I'm never home. Why would I buy a place? All this stuff, and then now, mm-hmm. to me at least, I'm like, I gotta I gotta buy a place out in the woods in case the rev comes,
1: <laughs> which exactly. it already had.
0: So one thing that you write about that I found interesting is about wealthier people and sort of holding them accountable for what they need to spend on or do to keep the economy afloat. Can you speak to that a little bit?
1: This is in part related to the K-shaped recovery that we're seeing following the coronavirus recession in which those at the top are doing just fine. While those who have been hit by job loss continuously been struggling, it's getting better for those who are doing better and has gotten worse for those who are doing worse. So basically, the experience economy shut down, which gave rise to solitary leisure, spending on things that were solo activities, going golfing, going boating, again, typically wealthier people activities. Mm-hmm. but it can even you know be something as simple as spending on fitness categories or books for reading but this solitary leisure spending wasn't enough to close the gap that was created in the economy once service industry shut down so now americans are spending over 1.6 trillion in savings and spending that money is what is going to boost the economy, but it's more likely that the wealthy will spend the money because the middle class, some still don't have jobs, are affected by pay cuts, and they're less likely to spend this money in a discretionary manner. So we really need the wealthy to spend some of what they're sitting on, and I'm sure that they will keep it in savings as well. But that is what is really going to start to stimulate the economy.
0: And they just don't want to do that?
1: <laughs> we don't know yet. It's really too early. What they've been spending their money on is very interesting, like buying a childhood collectible. What? What they've been buying during the pandemic is what now? Yes, Gabby. So I wrote a piece on the weird pandemic spending habits of the wealthy and they've been buying everything from like vintage Patagonia vests to old collectibles from childhood like Pokemon cards or old baseball cards. It's because they're bored and there's nothing better to do but then to like acquire these solitary leisure investment hobbies so it's going to be interesting to see. They're
0: so yeah. sad. They're just so nostalgic. They're like, I hate it here. I want to be in the 90s with my Tamagotchi.
1: Yeah, there there's a lot of uh, nostalgia going on for sure. So it'll be really interesting to see how this spending shifts. The vaccine rollout is underway, but it will depend on how the wealthy spend their money and We're still too early into the economic reopening to see how they actually will be spending their money.
0: I guess on pogs. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my God. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you?
1: Yeah, so find me on Twitter at Hillary. That's Hillary with two L's, not one. Underscore tweets. And I regularly tweet out my work there, and you can also access my Insider Author page from the Twitter bio there. Hello! Welcome
0: to Dear Gabby, the segment at the end of the show where we read your reviews and emails or listen to your voicemails. Okay, so here's an email we got, a lovely email. Chaos and goals. Gabby. I hope life is treating you and Allison well, despite all the negativity affecting the broader society and tenor of most conversations. Allison is Allison Raskin, who I do my other podcast with called Just Between Us. I listened to the first episode of your new season of Bad With Money, and I'm glad you're back in action. I did actually meet you and Allison once when you were in Chicago doing your book tour in 2019. That's right, we have two books out. One is called Please Send Help, and one is called I Hate Everyone But You. I've done book tours, so no big deal. I'm sorry to say I was a little more bashful than I personally expected to feel, but you were both kind and polite despite my shyness. (laughs) Oh, despite all the things afflicting the world at this moment, I thought it'd be nice to share some encouragement from my personal experience so that maybe others could learn that nothing can stop a focused and driven individual in accomplishing their goals. During 2020, I'm happy to say that in the midst of a chaotic year, I was able to get accepted into my teaching program at my current college and also was accepted to their master's program as well. Nice. I'm happy to say that after a year and a half of hard study and getting my, I assume they mean but, but they, they asterisked it out, together, I'm already finishing my teacher's license and my master's this summer as well. I also was able to get hired to teach at a school for the fall, along with buying a house, which I close on next month. Wait, what? Oh my God. These goals were possible to accomplish through the support I have from my family and friends who were with me and offering encouragement along the way as I knocked down each of my goals for last year and this year. Cool, can you come organize my life? If anyone can get anything from my email, I hope that they would be able to understand that despite the big picture around the world being somewhat bleak, a person can set goals that apply to them exclusively and tune out everything else that is happening by focusing on their own development and growth. Damn, reading, school, writing, hobbies, or anything else that can keep someone distracted from the madness around them is a positive and leads to excellent results. I hope yourself, Allison, and the audience are each setting their own goals for the year and tackling them with enthusiasm and determination. Congrats on getting your show back up again. I hope you'll keep going strong for another seven seasons. Very respectfully, Aaron Bonagovsky. I love that email, but we do have to take into account what is going on in the world. And we do have to use a little bit to a lot of our energy to help other people. But I understand what Aaron's saying. If you have specific goals that you want to accomplish, I don't think it hurts to focus up. But if you're also just super overwhelmed by everything going on or it changed your priorities where now you want to do more work in the broader sphere, I don't think that's bad either. Okay, are dress codes equitable? Hi, Gabby. I love the show. I've been learning about money and finance over the past couple of years, and it was a breath of fresh air to find a podcast that talks about inequality and what to do about it instead of just having money is great, Anyone could be rich if they just tried and had money to buy stocks. Which is like a side note from me, Gabby, most shows. Recently, my work changed its dress code and wants us to come back to the office after the pandemic in suits. Okay. My household makes $150,000 a year. Am married to a husband with good benefits and have paid off all my debt. We are now saving for a house and are not stressed by money. The thought of buying three suits, not to mention the shoes, shirts, and dry cleaning costs doesn't stress me out, but that means i won't be able to put money into savings for at least two months we live in an area with a high cost of living and i am one of the higher paid people at my job with no children to pay for on top of that part of my job involves physical labor that would ruin a suit very quickly and the industry standard dress for what i do is jeans or khakis and a polo i have ripped more than one item of clothing at work and come home filthy more times than i can count this makes me wonder is business attire and dress codes that require the employee to spend a lot of money on clothing that is hard to take care of equitable? Is there a fair way to implement a dress code without providing people with a uniform? How exclusionary are work dress codes and how much do they cut into what you are actually making? How does race and gender play into how much dress codes cost with personal grooming requirements? I figured you were the person to ask. Thank you so much for making a great show. Liz, okay, I had never thought about this before. This is fascinating. If anyone has insight into this, please write in or leave a voicemail because I thought this email was so great and asked so many really great questions. I do know that a YouTuber friend of mine named Ash Hardell did some videos a long time ago about transitioning and being able to transition from the female uniform of where they work to the quote-unquote male uniform of where they work, and that being such a huge, great deal for them. But yeah, I mean, even just like when you you know at jobs that i've had when i was younger and stuff when you ruin your uniform ruin or when you rip your uniform or something then they take it out of your pay which i always found to be like so <laughs> so unfair so yeah i mean this this is a huge huge change it sounds like at your work you're right like <laughs> pretty unfair and so i i would be curious if there was some kind of recourse for you if anyone knows any more than i do please write in because I do think, like, asking you guys to go above and beyond the industry standard is, there's got to be some sort of rights that you have to push back on that, I I think. I mean, maybe I'm being naive. But yeah, this is, you're right. I mean, and it's also great that this doesn't affect you personally, but you know that it will affect others that work with you. So I think this is actually something that you have the privilege to bring up at your work and maybe stand up for the other people. Wow. That was... That was mind blowing. And I had never considered in the past how like having, you know, uniform repairs or whatever or, or changing your uniform or getting a new one taken out of your pay is like so exclusionary. I've been reading a lot about the unhoused community in light of COVID and a lot of them are unable to even interview for jobs or get jobs that they are qualified for or that they would need to get housed because they don't have the proper clothes, even though they would be a great employee. So if you know more about this, or you're a lawyer, or you work in fair labor, and this is something that comes up for you a lot, please, please write in. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. I really appreciate it. You can also send an email to gabbyisbadwithmoney at gmail.com. And uh, guys, don't be scared of the phone. Give me a call. 844-474-4040. Done.